Good. Take your copy of God's Word. Let's go to Genesis chapter 14. And those of you who were just with me down around the Dead Sea, uh, this will kind of this, this kind of uh, mean a little something different to you now. You'll know exactly what we're talking about. I love history. And I always, I, I, I think a lot, I'm in the middle of reading two books. I'm reading The Ten Caesars, and I'm reading the book called Churchill right now. And I'm supposed to be reading stuff for school, but I'm reading history. Um, I would have loved to have been at certain moments in history when great men met. Could you imagine the moment when C.S. Lewis walked into uh, that little pub where he met J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time? I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been there when Washington walked into Benedict Arnold's quarters and he looked at Peggy Shippen and he said, where is your husband? That would have been wild. I would have loved to have sat on a horse next to, to Robert E. Lee at the end of the second day's battle when he was holding a war council with uh, uh, Longstreet and he looks at Longstreet and he says, the enemy is there. And if he is there in the morning, I will strike him. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been with uh, Caesar the night that he looks at that uh, German personal bodyguard of 600 and he says, we cross the Rubicon and it would forever change history. Just to be in moments, I had the opportunity to preach in Yalta, and they took me to the mansion where FDR and Churchill and the paranoid schizophrenic Stalin uh, met, and they divided up Europe in that place. I would have loved to have been in those moments, but can you imagine the moment when Abraham is coming back? For those of y'all that went, remember the gate of Abraham up at Tel Dan? He crossed in through there, and he comes back down. And as he's going back down, um, he's met by Melchizedek. Now, wonder what that meeting was like. Um, you are told about it here in the 14th chapter of uh, Genesis. Genesis chapter 14, the meeting of two great men. You've got Abram, who is this great patriarch, and you've got Melchizedek, who is this priest? And the two men meet. Melchizedek, we're told, goes out to meet him. Verse 17, chapter 14 of Genesis. Then after his return from the defeat of uh, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, went out or brought out bread and wine and now he was a priest of God Most High. Let me, let me point out something before I get in because I may not think to say it again. That's the first time you're introduced to this name of God. It's El Elyon in the Hebrew. It's the first time we're given that name. And uh, I'll tell you what I tell preachers when I teach preaching. Whenever you come across a person, a place, a thing, a name for the first time, mark it. Because it will give you some indication of the person or the place. There's something that's being said 
that will follow true for the rest of that place or name or whatever. So this is the first time, God Most High. Now, there are two things about that. How bless, he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, now you're going to read the name for the second time right here. Blessed be Abram of El Elyon, God Most High. Now, here's the first thing that goes with that name, possessor of heaven and earth. So he possesses, owns everything. El Elyon is the possessor of everything that there is. Then he comes, and he's going to use the name a third time. And uh, blessed, blessed be El Elyon, God Most High, who has delivered. He's the deliverer. He's the possessor and the deliverer who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. Now, I want you all to underline that. <laughs> Got a highlighter, highlighter. Well, the king of Sodom is also there, and he said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high. Now he uses the name. Do you see that? Now Abram is going to use the name for the first time. I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's already caught this. I will not take a thread or a sandal. I wouldn't take a shoelace from you. Or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Anner, Eskol, Mamre, let them take their share. Now, I want to give you, before it starts getting really hot in here uh, with all of these bodies in this place, let me, let me give you a couple of things tonight out of this meeting between these two great men. By the way, they've uncovered five of these cities that I know of. From 1924 to 1979, they've been, they've been doing archaeological digs, and they've uncovered five of these cities that are mentioned in the... Uh, 14th chapter, and from archaeological point of view, they say that these cities were completely destroyed and that the people either were taken off or were killed. Uh, I don't know how they tell that kind of stuff archaeologically, but they do. Uh, there is war. This is the first recorded war in Scripture. Now, it's not the first war in history, but it's the first recorded war in Scripture where you have four kings who come down against five cities with five kings in that Dead Sea area, down around that Dead Sea area. Uh, they come down from off, and the folks who've just come back with me, they come down from off of those mountains on either side of the Dead Sea, down into that Jordan Rift, into that valley down there, and they swept down on these five cities. And they pillaged them, they took everything that they had, and then they took off the people and one of those that they took happened to be Lot. Lot. Now, do you remember last, uh, three years ago when I was here, and we were talking about this, and uh, I told you all that Lot, you know, chose the best of the land, and what Abram could have done, he could have said, you, you know, you little nephew, you, uh, you, you, would, you don't have anything that you didn't get because of me, and you know he could have, but he didn't do any of that. Now look at where Lot is now. What what does he need? He needs Uncle Abraham to come and get him out of another fix. 
And you know what Abraham's going to do? He's going to do it. He's going to go, and he's going to do it. He's going to get him. So I want you to look at these two men as we go back to this. I'm not going to deal so much with the war as I'm going to deal with the, with the man Melchizedek primarily. First of all, I want you to see this. I want you to see that God raises up a righteous man in a wicked day. You really could say God raises up righteous men in a wicked day. One of the great mysteries about Melchizedek is where did he come from? We're told here that he is the king of Salem. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, the word Salem uh, etymologically is linked with Jerusalem. Uh, Theologically, it's linked with. Biblically, it is linked with. So uh, most all Old Testament, I don't know anybody that disagrees with this. All of them agree that he is the king of Salem. Um, But the interesting thing is this. He's the priest of God and the king of Salem. Now, Salem at that time, we call it Jerusalem, was the home of Baal worshiping Canaanites. And to become even more specific, uh, they turn out to be, as, the, as you go further in the Old Testament, they're Jebusites. And so you have to ask the question, what is this righteous man doing in the midst of this pagan culture? Why is he there? What's he doing? How did that happen? Uh, how does that all work out? Well, it's a good question. I don't know exactly how to answer it. Let me give you another thing. The writer of Hebrews is going to say this about Melchizedek. He's going to say that he was greater than Abraham. So you really begin to wonder who is Melchizedek. Now that's the question. Uh, when it comes to this chapter, uh, everybody wants to know who's Melchizedek. And you've got a plethora of, uh, of suggestions from all different places. Some say he's an angel. Uh, I don't know if the name Origen uh, means anything to you, but Origen was one of the very early church fathers from the late 200s into the early 300s uh, 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 A.D. Origen, uh, the Hexapla, put together the Hexapla. The Hexapla is the Hebrew Old Testament and five different Greek translations of the Greek Old Testament. He put all of that together. He was brilliant. He started the school at Alexandria. He was very allegorical in his interpretation. Uh, But he was a brilliant man. He believed that Melchizedek was an angel. Um, There are others that believe Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Some of you here probably have heard that. You've heard preachers say that. Some of you believe that. Um, And you believe it because what you read in Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll get over to Hebrews chapter 7 maybe uh, in a little bit. Some believe that. Some take that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Some believe, I had a professor, my philosophy professor at Southwestern, believed that Melchizedek was Shem. Because if you take the genealogy of Shem, who was the son of Noah, he lived 35 years longer than Abraham. Do you know that? That Shem's life eclipses the life of Abraham? So some people say he believed it. He gave pretty good argument. And you say, when a preacher, what do you believe? Well, 
I don't know. We'll find out one day. <laughs> Whoever he was, he was a righteous man. Uh, you can say that about him. You can say that God, in his goodness, in the midst of a wicked culture, in the midst of a wicked generation, reached down and he pulled up for his own glory a righteous man in a very wicked day. Now, propriety and a, and a respect from the pulpit keeps me from telling you what the Canaanites were like in their lifestyle and in their worship. But whatever was dark, whatever was demonic, whatever was nasty, whatever was filthy, uh, that's what the Canaanites gravitated toward. And uh, in the midst of that, God reaches down and he finds this guy who is righteous and he raises him up to become the king of Salem in a very wicked day. Now, he's not only that, but now think about this. This is a period of homicidal war. They were butchering people. And in the midst of all that, um, Salem, Jerusalem, it, it means peace, basically. Let me just say, let me just tell you that. It means peace. Here's a guy who was righteous in the midst of a wicked day, and in the midst of homicidal war, you've got a man who is a man of peace. And God raises him up. Now, there's something very interesting in all of that, and it's this. We need men like that today. We need men who are righteous before God, men who've been made righteous by God, men who are peaceful in their spirit, men who know how to be committed and dedicated to the things of God, men who are willing to show up and stand up and speak up regardless of what the cost is going to be. God can raise up those kind of men, and we're desperate in our day to see men like that. Um, where does he start with that? He starts at Valleydale Church. That's where he starts with that. So there you go. There's the first thing. Uh, you see a man a righteous man, that God can raise up a righteous man in the midst of a wicked day. Let me give you the second thing about Melchizedek. The second thing is this, is he is a type of Christ. He foreshadows the coming uh, Messiah. Melchizedek is significant for one major reason, and that is he is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, there are a number of things about him that I'm going to go through one of those happens to be that, first of all, he's a priest. And, and by the way, let me tell you, he's the only guy in the Old Testament who is a priest and a king. Um, there's another guy that's kind of similar to him. He's the only guy in the Old Testament who is a prophet and a priest and a judge. Who is that? Samuel. Mr. Ken, way to go. Good deal. I'm proud. We're going to get the deacons to take you out for a steak dinner on that. Man, that's, a good, that's a good deal. Oh, you'll accept it. All right. Well, so you've got these unusual situations. Here's one. This is the only guy in the Old Testament. No Levite could ever do this. But when it comes to this guy, he is both a priest and a king. Because in the Old Testament, those two offices were completely separate. You'll have a king who's a prophet. Who is that? David. David is a prophet. Remember what 
uh, Luke writes in, in Acts, uh, by the mouth of the prophet David, God said. David's just a prophet. He's a king. But priest and king are totally separate. Uh, those two things are not to be. I'll say more about that in a little bit. But he's a priest. Now, when we say priest in a Baptist church, we're at a loss. I've, I've been Baptist, you know, like I always say, nine months before I was born, uh, I was Baptist. We don't know what a priest is. Uh, since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, there have been no priests in Israel. There have been no sacrifice. Uh, but by the way, let, let me let you in on something. Uh, the folks on the trip heard this. Um, do you know who still sacrifices in the land of Israel today? Uh, what's left of the Samaritans? They still sacrifice. They go to Gerizim. You remember she said, we worship in this mountain and you worship uh, down there in Jerusalem. They still go to Gerizim and every Passover they sacrifice uh, a lamb. Anyway, since 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, there have been no more priests. There have been no more sacrifices. Uh, so we really don't know. The closest thing that we've got, as far as a priest goes, we have to look to the Roman Catholic Church. And in the Roman Church, they have a priest. And when they perform Mass, I was in Rome right before I went to, uh, uh, to Jerusalem and I walked in a number of, uh, of Roman churches and walked into the middle of them performing mass and would just stand and watch. It's interesting. It's curious. It's, in my opinion, it's very sad. Uh, but that's the closest thing we can understand this because they say that they are offering a bloodless sacrifice. And you will go, or they will go, and they will take the bread, and um, they will go for confession, and the priest will say, I forgive you. So the priest will pronounce that forgiveness on them. He'll say, I forgive you. And one of the reasons why I believe that there has always been this appeal for the Roman church is because of one of the deepest needs in the human heart when we wrestle with sin and we wrestle with guilt is that we want to hear somebody who stands between God and us look at us and say, God forgives you. That's what Job cried out for in Job chapter 9 when he said, you know, I wish there were a daysman. I wish there were an umpire that would stand between me and God. Now that's what he was crying. The human heart longs to hear that. Well, let me tell you something. No priest can do that, but let me tell you there is a high priest called Jesus Christ who can. And he says that we are forgiven. Listen, there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. That's one of the major differences between the Protestant church and the Roman church. I don't think a man can forgive your sins. I believe a man who went to a cross and died. Listen, let me tell you something. Um, in, in Jerusalem, we were looking at, I think, his, I think the rabbi's name was Schmierson uh, from New York, who claimed to be the Messiah, and many people worshipped him as the Messiah. Uh, he died a number of years ago. He still, I have always decided that if a man is killed and he gets up in three days, he's going to be my Savior. <laughs> and there's only been one of them that that's happened. That's right. So, anyway, the reason Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews is to show that Christ's priesthood was superior to Melchizedek. 
The whole book of Hebrews, uh, you can write, you could turn to Hebrews and over the title Hebrews, you could write this, the superiority of Jesus Christ. He's superior to everything. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to the sacrifice. He's superior to the temple. He's even superior there uh, to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, a priest, stood at an altar and offered a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Jesus Christ went to the altar as the high priest, got on the cross as the sacrifice, and gave himself as the sacrifice. So his priesthood is greater than that of Melchizedek. Peter says he died once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Now, when you come to the word uh, high priest, in the Latin it is the concept of bridge builder. That's why they will call the Pope uh, Pontifex Maximus, the great bridge builder. Um, whenever they elect a new pope, when a pope dies and a new pope is selected by the cardinals, uh, they will crown him. And then at some point in all of that ceremony, he goes out to a bridge over the Tiber River and with a silver hammer, he will nail a nail into the bridge and he will be declared the great bridge builder. Did y'all know that? Well, he will, but there's a difference in nailing a nail into a bridge and having a nail nailed into you. Now, that's the bridge builder right there. He built a bridge between us, sinful man, and a holy, righteous God. Big difference in that. Well, he was a priest. The other thing was Melchizedek was a king. In fact, the very name, uh, Melek. Uh, is king in um, Hebrew. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. It's, uh, it's Hebrew. I'm trying to think of what it is in Greek. I think it's the same thing in Greek, isn't it? It's, it's similar to it. Uh, Sedek in Hebrew is righteousness. So when he's called Melchizedek, you take the two words, uh, Melek and Sedek, and you put them together, you've got king of righteousness. So he's king of righteousness, and he's king of Salem. He's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Both of those things were prophesied about Jesus. If you've got a Bible, look with me at, um, at that great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, and you're going to pick up on that. You'll see it right there. you also see it in Zechariah um, as well. But in Isaiah chapter 9, listen to what is said in um, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, here it is, Prince of Peace. Then you come to verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. There it is. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord. How's it going to happen? The zeal of the Lord. The passion of the Lord. The power of the Lord will accomplish this. So exactly what Melchizedek 
his title said of him is exactly what Jesus Christ was. He is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of uh, peace. Now, let me, let me go through that. Listen to this. As priest, Jesus had compassion, and he fed the hungry, and he healed the sick. As king, he could speak to the wind and the waves and say, peace, be still. As priest, he prayed the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. As king, he wore a crown of thorns. As priest, he could touch the ear of the servant of the high priest and heal it, put it back on. As king, he could conquer death and the grave. As priest, he pleaded with the Father to forgive those who crucified him. As king, he ascended, he rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. Jesus is the only one who could do that. Bring the two offices together. You get a glimpse of it in the Old Testament. You get a picture of it in the Old Testament. And the picture of it there is Melchizedek. But the actual coming together of the two offices come together only in Jesus Christ. Now, there were two kings in the Old Testament that attempted to do the work of the priests. One was Saul. There you go. Saul. Remember? He did that, and as soon as he offered up that uh, offering, he turns around and Samuel's there, and Samuel says, what have you done? What have you done? The other is Uzziah, who went into the temple, and he broke out immediately with leprosy all over his body. So twice it, uh, it was attempted, but it never, it never worked. Now let me do this. Let me take you over to Hebrews chapter 7. And just kind of briefly, and I'm going to open myself up to all kind of questions at this point. But let me, let me just take you over there. You know, Melchizedek is like a meteor that, that, uh, uh, that passes across the pages of, of, the, of Holy Scripture every thousand years. You see him here in Genesis 14. A thousand years later, you read about him in Psalm 110. And then, a thousand years later, you read about him in Hebrews chapter 7. But you only see him once. The only time you ever see him is right there in uh, Genesis chapter 14. In Hebrews chapter 7, you read this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. It is amazing how Scripture interprets its own self. Every bit of that, I've stood up here for the last 20 minutes and told you that. Well, um, There he is, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. It's referring not necessarily to him. It's really referring to his office there. So here's Christ who, uh, who is the king of righteousness and who is the king of peace. Now, here's the thing about that. We always want the peace of Jesus Christ. 
But now you've seen from the Old Testament now to the New Testament, these two things are married. Righteousness and peace. Everybody's looking for peace. Everybody wants peace. I want peace in my marriage. I want peace in my home. I'd like to have some peace at the workplace. We want peace between the nations. We'd like peace in Congress. We'd like, there's a lot of things we'd like in Congress. Uh, <laughs> peace is one of them. All of these things, we want that. But let me tell you something. Have you ever stopped to think that until we submit to the righteousness of Christ, we'll never have the peace of Christ? You can't have the one without the other. Uh, the peace of Christ is ours, but we have to submit ourselves to the righteousness of Christ. Okay. Let me give you one last thing. Now let me take you back now to Genesis chapter 14. And it's this. Life becomes a choice. Which king are you going to bow before? This whole chapter, do you know there are, I think I counted, I think there are ten kings in this chapter. There are nine pagan kings and then there's Melchizedek. And it's interesting, out of a chapter with, nine, uh, with ten kings, Abraham bows to one of them and he bows to Melchizedek. But now watch, there are two kings that come and stand in front of him. Melchizedek, I'm in verse 18 now of Genesis 14. I'll come back to this. King of Salem brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, a possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand and gave him a tenth of all. Now notice this. Melchizedek comes with something. He brings something to Abram. Here's the other king. The king of Sodom, verse 21. He doesn't have a cotton-picking thing. There's nothing. And he says to him, give the people to me, you take the goods for yourself. Now, I just have to tell you up front, you want to just say, you know what, that guy's a pretty good guy. He's a pretty good guy. He doesn't want the stuff. He just cares for the people. He's just interested in the people. Well, let me tell you, he didn't do one thing to get those people. Not one thing did he do to rescue his own people. Abraham did that. And he comes out there with nothing, and he starts bargaining with Abraham and saying, Oh, you keep all the stuff, just give the people to me. Let me tell you something. Satan will bargain every material possession away to get the souls of people. Huh? Y'all see that? He will bargain everything away. He cares nothing about cars or houses or salaries or dollars or jewelry or anything like that. He'll bargain anything away in order to get your soul. And that's exactly what Sodom is doing right here. The king of Sodom is doing right here. He comes out there with nothing. Satan never brings you one cotton-picking thing. Now, Melchizedek comes out there with something. He comes out there with bread and wine. Here is the king of Sodom who is attempting to bargain off the temporal. And here is Melchizedek who comes out there with something that is symbolic of the eternal. Now, I'm not going to be allegorical 
lot, I have heard some awful, terrible preaching out of this passage. And, you know, we all want to make the analogy so quickly to the body and the blood of Christ here. I think you, I think you walk on a little shaky ground when you get to doing that, but I do think what is legitimate is this. It is bread and wine that sustain life. He brought to Abram what Abram needed and what his men needed and that which would sustain and nourish life. What does Jesus Christ bring to us other than that which gives and sustains and nourishes life? That's, to me, a legitimate um, application of that passage there. When God comes to you, he never comes seeking a gift from you. He always comes bringing you something, which is an interesting thing now. I'm going to preach. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, I will not take anything from you. Anything. He nails down now this commitment. I want nothing from the world. I don't have, there's nothing you have that uh, would entice me uh, at all. He's made his commitment. He makes this commitment to Melchizedek. And look at what he does. The Bible says he brings him, he gives him a tenth of all. First time you see that in scripture. He gives him a tenth of all. I have a lot of people today who say, well, okay, we're living under grace. We're, you know, the Old Testament, New Testament doesn't teach tithing. Well, I think it does. Um, but, you know, I, there are even seminary professors that in Baptist seminaries that teach the New Testament does not teach tithing. And I want to look at them and say, do you, do you understand that all your salary comes from Baptists who take up an offering on Sunday mornings? You know? Um, this was before the law. There was no law. This was before, prior, this is before law. BL, before law. This is prior to church. This is prior to a canon of scripture. It's prior to all of that, and yet something down in the heart of Abraham said, this is what I need to give is a tenth. It seemed like a right thing for him to give to Melchizedek a tenth of what he had. And so he gave him a tenth of it. Then you have the old, it's codified then in the law. By the time you get to the New Testament, it is such a part of Jewish life, you don't really have to talk much about it. It was a part of who they were. It was a part of what they did. So, and I've always said, if you cannot give under grace what a Jew was required to give under law, you just live in disgrace. If I can't give more under the grace of God than a Jew gives under the law, God forgive me. Anyway, okay, I won't, I won't hound on y'all or beat you up about that. But that's an important thing. That's an important thing. He comes to worship 
And he comes, and when he worships, he brings a tenth. Now, here's the bottom line question. Which king are you going to kneel before? Which one? Famous song. You know what it is. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Theology Dylan. (laughs) Well, there's Melchizedek. And there's the patriarch Abraham. And old Lot is stuck back there somewhere just watching it all. Any questions?